0: You can actually succeed by hiring lower paid people who are maybe earlier in their career, but are gonna do very well within the system that you create. So don't be afraid to stop having the $300,000 a year person and move that to something a little bit more refined and structured where people are gonna sit on the rails that you give them.
1: This is Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing. Stop guessing.
2: If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, this podcast is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman.
1: And I'm Karina Owens, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Reveal. Hi, Danny. Karina, we're shaking. How are you doing?
2: Man, we've got something in store for listeners today. Tell us about it.
1: We are mixing things up a little bit, actually. And we're going to be speaking to the CEO and co-founder of Regal.io, Alex Levin, who's going to be talking about what we can learn from the B2C perspective of sales. And for those who hate acronyms as much as I do, B2C stands for business to consumer. And I'm pretty excited about it because that's how we learn, right? From new, different perspectives. So, Danny, what was your take on this episode?
2: Karina, you were spot on. We always typically have B2B, or for acronym haters out there like Karina, that's business to business. Well, we definitely have something to learn from Alex and his B2B expertise. He's talking about creating a differentiated model with service, but in an online transaction marketplace. You may be thinking, how do I simulate what historically was achieved in a brick and mortar person to person interaction? Well, how do I do that online? He's going to show us how that level of intimacy can still be possible with A-B testing, data, and so forth. So I'm pumped, Karina.
1: Perfect. Let's get into it, Danny.
0: We're pumped to have you here, Alex. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. I've promised our investors that Regal with Cinemas is going bankrupt, and we'll end (laughs) up being worth more than them. So you know, help me make that happen. Don't go to Regal Cinemas.
2: We just want to go (laughs) on record that we are not operating as fiduciaries or financial advisors and are not (laughs) necessarily suggesting any investment strategies that you may or may not have as reveal listeners. But yes, Alex, we hope that you do absolutely gangbusters in the open market. Wanted to start because again, our bread and butter historically has been B2B and we want to hear a little bit about the genesis of Regal because when you realized what was this absolute gold rush opportunity in B2C, you guys jump right on it. Tell us a little bit about your origins and then we'll pivot from there.
0: Yeah. So first, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, we're, we're big fans of gongs and I think I've known some of your investors since the very beginning. So it's incredible to see how much you guys have grown. I know from the outside, it looks like this, this perfect story, but I'm sure you guys have done a lot of hard work. What's the metaphor people use is, uh, the swan or the duck. Like it looks perfect above the water, but below the surface, like there's a ton of crazy stuff happening to make it, make it work as well as it does. From my side, my background and my co-founder's background is very similar. We come up really on the B2C marketing side. So we helped a lot of different businesses move online and start selling to consumers online. And the last business we worked with was trying to bring home improvements online. And the original thesis was, hey, why can't we sell fence installation the same way we sell pants on the internet? You know, Have a picture, have a price, have a review. You know, never talk to your customer. Make it really easy for them to buy. And you know, we actually, over time... Built a pretty big business. So Angie, the company we worked for owned Angie's list, Home Advisor, Handy. It was the largest home improvement company in the world. We got to over a billion dollars in revenue. The embarrassing thing that I shouldn't say so loudly, but I'll say is that we found that the conversion online for these services was worse than offline. So the old paper and pencil, you know, guy who was taking your order did a better job of taking that lead and getting them to buy than, you know, this fancy new mousetrap we'd built on the internet. Kind of embarrassing because we thought we you know we were good at building technology, and as we got further into it, we found that if we had a conversation with the customer, conversion rate bumped back up, which is like against everything we'd ever learned. You know, we'd always been told never talk to your customers, and here's an example worth really working. And what I've learned over time is there are certain industries that came online first, like groceries, and you know, like selling you know uh, commodity retail products, where it was perfectly fine to never talk to your customer, but there's a set of industries that I would consider quite different that we actually call high consideration industries or high price industries, where historically there always was a human being helping you. So think of admissions and educations or an onboarding person in healthcare, or perhaps a salesperson in insurance. There always was a human being. And just because this model has moved online doesn't mean you can remove that human being from the process because they're actually quite helpful in making that decision. And so when we saw this, We've built out a very large sales team at Angie. So over a thousand people that would talk with customers. So you'd come in, you'd look for that fence installation. We'd call you back and say, you have a fence or you want a fence, a bigger fence, like tell us more and uh, massively improve the conversion. And so having that opportunity to build trust really was differentiated. There was no technology to support that motion because everyone had been so focused on customer support and focused on eliminating the I, I'm sure you've experienced it. Like you go to some site, and you can't find the contact us page. Like everyone was eliminating that. So we ended up leaving to start Regal on the premise that there are more and more of these businesses for whom talking to the customer is critical and they need modern technology that identifies real-time customer behavior a personalized phone and SMS outreach. Right? We don't want to be spamming customers. Nobody likes that. We don't want to be calling at random times. But if you're on SoFi as a customer, for instance, if you're on SoFi, trying to refinance your student loan and you can't figure out how to do it. And in that moment, so if I calls you and that call is branded as SoFi, which we can do, which is very cool, and you you pick it up, that's amazing, right? Because they can go, I see exactly what's happening, like and I can help you with that in the moment. So, so yeah, to your question, my background is very heavily B2C, very heavily marketing. And I've since obviously been introduced to SaaS. I wish 10 years ago somebody had told me I should move to SaaS because it is a phenomenal business model where you get to be really close to your customer. You get to invest much more in technology than B2C. But I will say I've been underwhelmed by the sophistication of the marketing tools on the B2B side. Partly, I think the challenge is there's much lower volume of users, You know, whereas in B2C we had millions of customers. And so we had to have more sophisticated technology and it enabled more sophisticated strategies. On B2B, you might, you know, have 100 or 200 customers a week, so you can't do as much. But I think part of it is also just a lack of understanding of modern marketing methodologies. There's a very heavy reliance on cold calling, very heavy reliance on third-party data instead of first-party data. And it's uh, an opportunity, if nothing else, for B2B brands to change the way that they market to customers.
2: I'm just reflecting on your example with SoFi. And
0: right out of the gates,
2: there is no world in which I would ever go to a website and ask for financing because I would want that personal relationship with my banker who understands what it is that I'm trying to do. And given the size of financial obligation I would have, having been burned by the Ubers or the lists when I'm just trying to find a human to connect with, and I can't, and I'm just circling the drain in kind of honestly vain, not able to find anybody. It's refreshing to hear that you guys are attempting to bridge this chasm of trust in a paradigm that inherently is contradictory to trust and personalization yeah. because there is that virtual barrier. So walk us through a little bit about the importance of trust and what are ways, obviously, you put SoFi's name on you know, the caller ID that I see on my phone, sure, but it has to be more than just that if you're going to win over my willingness to do something entirely unconventional and unfamiliar like financing a house through a website.
0: Yeah, I think when we were doing prep for this, we talked a little bit about one of the big banks that I spoke with very early in our process. And what shocked me is that I expected them to say that Move Online was the answer to all their problems and that it was an incredible opportunity to to really improve their business. But what shocked me is that they claimed that a human who walked into a physical branch used to fund an account 93% of the time. But a human that came to their digital experience online only funded the account at thirty percent of the time, so they understood that if one hundred percent of their business shifted online and they didn't do anything about it, their business was going to be crushed. It would hurt their business, not help their business to be online. And so they were desperate. It was it was critical that they figure out a way to add that human touch back into that digital experience. And so, to your point, why is that needed? Well, I think part of it is trust. You know, having a human being there is very different than just dealing with a random website, even for a very well known brand. Part of it is. The fact that most customers are now coming on their cell phone to a site. And so in that very small form factor, it's impossible to explain a mortgage. It's impossible to explain everything about a bank account. And so it's just a bad form factor. Part of it, I think, is in these more complicated, you know, industries, I don't know, you know, I'm only going to open a bank account once in five years. So I don't know enough about it. I'm not doing it frequently enough. I go on Amazon all the time. I get out works. I, there's returns. It's okay. I don't if I mess up, it's it's not a problem. There's no returns when I open a bank account. So, like, if I'm going to go and do this complicated thing, I need someone to help me understand what are the things I should be asking? What are the things I should be considering? And so, disambiguating those complicated pieces and sort of emoting with me is an important part of it. So, in our business, like, we're not optimizing automation. We're optimizing for getting a human to human conversation happening that leads to that unlock. Now, if we can around that support that human to make sure they're talking to you at the right time and they're know all the context and they're using the channel that you prefer and they're reaching at a time that's good for you, great. Like technology should empower the human, but we don't want to replace that human, with that brand.
1: I really appreciate what you're saying as a marketer. You know, all my career has been mostly in B2B, but I've never treated my marketing as if it was B2B because it's really selling to a human, marketing to a human. And it's about creating that relationship so that you can build that trust over time. So I would ask you, then, what would, you know, especially as more and more people are leaning into new technology, you know, AI is advancing, everybody and their mother is talking about chat, GPT, things of that nature. There's still a human that's, in, you know, being part of that process that's teaching that technology, that's teaching yeah. that algorithm, that machine learning. What advice would you give to your customers who are, I would say, concerned about moving more and more and more to that digital space?
0: I think, you know, there's internally, especially this year, a lot of effort to cut costs. And so I think the the thing that I warn people is, if you take this to an extreme, just as a thought experiment, and say, you know, you're a, let's use the online neobank example. You're an online neobank, and you cut all the costs out of your customer support. You cut all the costs out of anybody who talks with the customer. What's your differentiation versus the next neobank? right? You're probably built on exactly the same technology platform as the other neobank because that's what happens today. Sure, you have a little bit of branding, but it, without service, like there is no differentiation. The reason why like growing up, I stayed with the local M&T bank and Bob the banker for so long is not because he made no mistakes, but because I knew him as a human being. He knew me as a human being. And so even if he would make mistakes, I'd stay. What we see today with the neobanks is that the second the neobank makes a mistake, That person immediately churns and goes to another bank because there's no relationship. There's no connection. So I guess the thought experiment is to say, you know, probably that would be a dystopian future if we end up with no human connection. So instead, let's pull back and and not ask ourselves, how do we save money? Let's ask ourselves, how do we create a experience for the customer which optimizes for the best long-term connection? So what I mean by that is something that drives the most revenue for the brand, which is Positive, obviously, the revenue generating motion and something that supports the customer. So, what we encourage people to do using our platform is to do A B tests. So, if you were to call a customer when, let's say, they have $100,000 in the bank account and ask them, do they want to move it into a checking, sorry, from a checking account to a savings account to make a little bit of interest? What does that do for the long term retention of that customer? Sure, it costs you money, it costs you $5 in human time for that call, for that call. But If on the other side, that person goes, oh my goodness, this is incredible. The bank cared about me and they reached out and they made sure that I put it in an interest bearing account instead of sitting there making no money. Maybe that person now stays with you for a much longer time. So stop thinking about each interaction only from the perspective of cost cutting and start thinking about the revenue generating side of what you can do. And I think marketing naturally does this. So marketing is constantly thinking about, oh, can I send another text message that's going to do this? But they're only thinking from an automated perspective. So part of what we work with is the the operation side of the business, whether it's customer service or sales, on how they can proactively be reaching out to customers to turn their part of the business from a call center to a revenue driver.
1: I appreciate that. And I think that kind of also starts with how you're actually, as a company, treating your own employees, right? Because you essentially have a brand walking around online, offline, representing who you are, and that's naturally who they're going to connect with. So I think People really, companies should be really considering doubling down on people internally, which will definitely benefit them externally. Yeah. But I do want to go back to what you said about the A-B testing, because I think certainly in the B2B space, and you would have a different perspective from the B2C, but certainly in the B2B space, we don't give ourselves, afford ourselves enough time to even do the testing or experiment to begin with, to have a good data set to make comparison on, Right. So is there any advice you would give when you're talking to your clients or potential clients about how they should approach A-B testing when it comes to, you know, generating net new revenue or retention?
0: Yeah. So I'm happy to go there. I'll even answer something slightly different first, if it's okay, on the B2B marketing side, which is when I started on the B2B side and I saw sort of, you know, people not using the best tools necessarily on marketing. I think part of my reaction was, wow, this is such a phenomenal business. They don't even need great tools. They don't even need to do all the amazing marketing and they're still doing really well. So I don't think it's that, you know, people sort of intentionally are are not using sort of the best tools. They didn't need to. I think as there's more sophistication in SaaS, like we're gonna have to move to a world where people are doing more of this stuff. So just as an example, one of our friends runs a business called Mutiny, which helps businesses, B2B businesses actually do some of that A-B testing on their landing pages to make sure that as customers are coming in, they are seeing differentiated, you know, copy that, you know, then converts them at a much higher rate. So, you know, there are newer tools like that that are starting to do it on the B2B side. I think it's just sort of starting from scratch and saying, I'm not going to just use, I'm not going to name specific tools that so I don't want to pick on people, but I'm not going to use the same email client everyone uses and the same CRM everyone uses and the same whatever everyone uses, just because that's what's always been done in B2B. I'm going to stop. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to think, what is the customer journey? You know, How do I want to design that marketing? How am I going to create the best possible experience? And if that means using, and I see this more and more now, B2C marketing tools like Iterable or Braze instead of the traditional B2B ones, then so be it. I'm not going to be locked into the B2B tools. Because Iterable and Braze allow you to take true first-party data and personalize all the outreach based off of what's happening so that's a much more powerful set of tools and allows ab testing in a much more powerful way so i'm happy to go back to your question about like our b2c users if you want or we can you know focus on more b2b marketing whichever you prefer
1: either is fine i think what b2c does in my you know experience just from talking with peers is that they just have more data set as you said as well to work with right they have more of a sample size so this a b i A-B testing idea, if you allow for a length of time to test, what is that customer journey experience like? And you have that larger size of a data set. I think that's where B2B kind of falls short often is that to your point, we don't have as large of a customer base that we're typically going after, let alone allowing ourselves enough time to actually test a new customer journey lifecycle or a new program or a new event, you know, what have you to see what actually moves the needle to get a customer from point A to point B. So really, the B2C model, I think, is something that B2B marketers have just started to pick up on and certainly sellers, too. But it's like you said, it's, it's starting to treat it more like a B2C selling motion that's going to, I think, win out at the end.
0: Yeah. And you see it a little bit, obviously, in the PLG companies that sort of especially in the freemium models and lower end models where there's a much higher volume of users, like they are starting to do more of that typical B2C type marketing. But I do think it's still possible to take this approach, even if the volumes are relatively low. You know, it's just taking a more data-based approach to each of the pieces of what you're doing. So don't just make a piece of content based off of what you think. You know, take a little bit of time, see which searches are happening that are landing on your site, see what people are searching for on your site, make two versions of the content, split tests like where you're sending people to. Sure, it takes a little bit more time, but in the end, like the results can be much better. And I'm not suggesting make like small changes in the two versions. Like take a completely different approach. I have one version that has videos and very little text. I have another version that's all text. See what performs better and use that to like enhance your learnings over time. And I think if you're constantly every day doing that, like you'll be successful. My sort of definition of the businesses that are successful very early especially are the ones that are constantly failing. People sort of are surprised when I say that. What I mean is if you can fail really fast and learn from that and then iterate again, you're gonna get to the right answer much faster. If you're constantly slowing down or not sure or leaving it the way it was, you're never gonna, maybe you had a good solution at the beginning, but you're never gonna be the best solution at the end. So actually like the sign of early businesses that are succeeding are the ones that are just constantly failing and are very aware of it and then improving what they're doing. Alex
2: is completely right. It's all about data. What better way to gather data than through a b testing another acronym so let's give you a 101 reminder for what that stands for a b testing is basically comparing two versions of something to figure out which version performs the best all working to boost sales and maximize you guessed it profit according to trueless successful a b testing can bring a fifty five zero increase in the average revenue per unique visit for e-commerce sites. And who doesn't want that kind of uplift? Well, A B testing may be one of the oldest tricks in the marketing playbook, but man, it works and it is valuable. Enough from me. Let's get back to the magician himself, Alex, and hear some more. Really love that notion, Alex, of to celebrate failing fast and existentially have a better fighting chance at surviving if that's your approach. I want to take one or two steps back and discuss your background in undergrad as a psychologist and thinking about some of the things you mentioned earlier, the role within banking or insurance now that we are doing so much more from our phones is disambiguating or empathizing with this could be a unfamiliar or totally foreign process. Where does your pedigree in psychology then play into how not only you think about selling Regal, but then by extension for your customers who use Regal at SoFi, how
0: do they become experts in human psychology and almost the Sigmund Freud's of sales? Talk to us about that. I do wonder sometimes if it's because of my undergrad degree that I'm interested in this stuff, or maybe I'm just interested in stuff, and that's why I did both. I don't know. I, I will say, in general, my co and I both have liberal arts undergrad degrees, and we believe really strongly in the power of general degrees. So I- thought for a while I might be, you know, go to philosophy school, you know, graduate school afterwards. I thought I might go become an academic and obviously didn't go that way. But the experience of constantly every day considering these issues definitely teaches you a way of thinking that you wouldn't learn any other way. So highly encourage people to go to like learn whatever they want to learn in college, even if it has nothing to do with what they want to do professionally. So definitely not a requirement. That said, I think You know, the stuff I studied specifically within philosophy and psychology was very focused on what's called philosophy of science and sort of the underpinnings of how people do research. So it certainly like got me ready for a lot of the things that I'm doing now. And I think a lot of the basic philosophical concepts and psychological concepts that you learn in sort of the one-on-one classes are helpful in preparation for doing marketing. So yeah, I think it's good practice for people to have that before they go start marketing. The piece that you don't get from that that is critical is the mathematics background. I was lucky. I studied a lot of mathematics as well. And so, you know, you, you know, it really prepares you to be in a position where you can do the math necessary to understand whether or not something is working. I think a philosophy or psychology degree on its own is not helpful if you don't have the numerical ability. So, you know, as I think about what I'm doing today, certainly those degrees prepared me, but it wasn't something that I you know had in mind when I was doing that back then.
2: Good to know that, you know, a combination of Descartes and John Nash is what unlocks colossal success. Tell us a little bit about inherent to Regal's actual product. So if I'm a Regal customer, how do I sort of, I think, get to harness the power of the psychology that's baked into your secret sauce? So if I'm a SoFi agent, but I'm using Regal to personalize that outreach to Danny, who's thinking about taking out a loan, what is SoFi? you know, using psychologically that gives them the advantage of going to another, whether it's a neo bank or whether it's a brick and mortar I know Bob the banker at M&T.
0: Yeah, so I think the first concept that has been around in marketing for a long time and is a little bit newer in sales, in B2C sales, let's say, is personalization. So it's not super surprising that when you treat every customer the same and you call them all the same from the same number at the same time with the same message, you're not going to have the best possible outcome you're going to have a much better outcome if you can use the context we you know about them, use what they're doing in the moment to engage them at the right time with the right message and and help them. So the example I sometimes give is imagine 50 years ago, you walked into your private club. They might say, oh, Danny, it's so good to see you. Here's the favorite table that you love. And here's the drink that you want. And Do you want to make sure that we play the right music that you like? They knew that about you and a personalizing experience. So that's why you go back there. You know, if they treated everybody like Danny, then Karina might not have so much fun if that was the experience she was was given when she went. So personalization is proven to massively improve the engagement and the outcomes and is used a lot in marketing. A lot of what we're doing is just giving the brands that we work with the tools to go and do that in sales. When we started talking with sales teams, they didn't like the fact that they weren't personalizing. They were not proud of the fact that they called you 10 times and you didn't answer at all. They just, that's what the tools that they had allowed them to do. So they were very creative people that wanted to personalize it once they had the right tools. So now that we've given them that tool set, they've done incredible things. So I don't want to take credit for the creativity. We take credit for giving them the tool set. We've now created a set of journeys, you know, all these different templates of journeys that we can help brands use if they're getting started. So if somebody says to us, Hey, I want to create a new retention campaign. What are the ideas in banking that work really well? We can give them a set of those. But again, that wasn't our creativity. That was really creativity all of our customers that led to having those templates.
1: I like the idea of the collective templates that and then giving your employees, your sales, your marketing team the ability to iterate as they go because you should never have a set it and forget it mentality. People are constantly changing. Our environment is constantly in flux. So personalization is huge. And For me in particular, it's one of my specialties is account-based marketing. And I get often asked, you know, what is AVM and when should you start AVM? Anytime you want. Anytime you want, any size you want because it's just about doing strategic go-to-market strategies that you know are going to benefit your customer. There was a quote that you shared, I believe, that I would love for you to kind of put some more or unpack this for us, if you will. Uh, It's bringing the human voice online. If you were to leave people with with that quote today? What would you want them to take away from it as an actual takeaway about how they can start to bring the human voice online today? Like, What's one or two tactics you would give them?
0: Yeah. mean you're more interested in B2B or B2C?
1: What, give me what you got, whichever you prefer, Alex.
0: Yeah. So so let's, just for the sake of argument, talk a little bit about sort of a more transactional sale, whether it's B2B or B2C, something it's higher volume, more transactional. I think a couple of things, you know, first, we talked about the fact that service is a differentiator. So don't put your business in a position where you're only looking at cost savings. Make sure you're looking also at what is the revenue impact of having service in general, whether it's customer service or sales. Because you know, I think if you lose that, you, you've completely lost. Like we don't want this future of the internet to be you know humanless. Like we actually want a human internet in the future, and that's what'll be best for everybody. So that's one concept. I think the second one is using first-party data instead of third-party data. So this shift is massively happening on the B2C side by necessity because you're no longer allowed to use third-party data in many cases. I think in B2B, it's been a little bit slower because you're still allowed to use third-party because often you have less of their sort of behavior on your site. But I think it is shifting Like, and I recommend using first-party data like what email do they click on? What page do they go to? What did they say to the you know, use the recording, like what did they actually say in the call and what happened as a result of the call and, you know, who are their friends on LinkedIn and use that behavioral information to actually go and do something in that moment. So if you see that, you know, very commonly people who visit this page are great customers of yours. Well, then when they visit that page, you should be, you know, engaging them right in that moment. And I think part of that is at first is a little spooky to people. But I'm not suggesting you do it in a spooky way. I'm suggesting you do it in a very helpful way. And you say, you know, I'm from Gong. I'm here to help you. We see that people get stuck on this page because they really want the product, but they're not sure about this thing. I'm here to solve that problem for you. People are then appreciative of it. They don't find it spooky, actually. I'd say the next one is, you know, you talked about it a little bit, but, you know, is investment in people. You know, very commonly when we see people run these programs of humans, at the beginning, they sort of have some performance. And they go, oh, it's not exactly where I want. The truth is that in any of these programs, you'll have 10% of the human, the agents that are way above average or so good at it. You'll have a bunch in the middle and you'll have 10% that are really bad on it. Doesn't mean they're bad human beings. They're just bad at doing this thing. You can't be afraid to move the people who are bad at it off onto other projects and to then constantly be trying to find people that will match that top 10%. And you're never going to completely match it, but it's that you have to be constantly doing that to find people that are good at this. It You can't stay still. And I don't know why, but this, like, has, in every team I've ever run, I've seen the split of the quality or, you know, for that specific use case. And very often, like, when I move somebody to a different team, they do very well on a different team. But don't be afraid to constantly being, you know, doing that creative destruction. And then I think, you know, the last piece is, it is a change in mentality, but it is okay to have some teams where they are much more transactional, let's just say. So historically, B2B, you gave the salesperson a lot of importance. You gave them a lot of leeway. They kind of did what they wanted. And you said, as long as they hit their quote, I don't care. And that's fine for some teams. But I think more and more, there's a shift from outside sales to inside sales and inside sales to transactional sales, where you can actually succeed by hiring perhaps lower paid people who are maybe earlier in their career, but are going to do very well within the system that you create. So don't be afraid to stop having the $300,000 a year person and move that to something a little bit more refined and structured, where people are going to sit on the rails that you give them. I think at first people go, oh, it couldn't be possible. I couldn't replace this person. But actually, I think a lot of it can be you know, replicated in a way that's actually better for the customer and better for the business because it's more reproducible. You're not counting on one person's specific genius to succeed, you're counting on a system that you've created that you can repeat again and again.
1: That was a mic drop moment for me, Alex. And I think that will be for our listeners too. So just to summarize all that up, don't be afraid of creative disruption and don't rely on one singular person or one singular process and make sure that you're looking at through the lens of the customer always. I love that. I think that we're going to pull that probably as a highlight for sure. So Alex, thank you again for coming here with us today we have so appreciated your insight we'd love to just wrap this up here and close it out with the question that we ask all of our guests feel free to take as much time as you need on it if you were to describe sales in one word what one word would that be
0: i have to think now i don't know one word it's
1: it's a stumper i know always always
0: i know what i want to say but i don't know how to say it in one word
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's, let's do some creative disruption right now and eliminate the one word. What's the word you want to say?
0: Yeah, I want to say that there's the glory of sales that people see in movies, but the reality is that the best salespeople fail nine out of 10 times. And it's an exercise in futility. It's an exercise in you know, mental fortitude and being there, knowing that just because nine people say something doesn't mean that what you're doing is wrong or bad. And it's a very... Unusual career where you throw yourself to the wolves again and again, knowing that the most successful salespeople only succeed one out of ten times. And to say that in one word, I mean it's hard. It's you know, it's it nothing. It doesn't give it the right, the justice.
2: We're not here to put words in your mouth, but as you were offering your synopsis of the career, I was thinking grind. I was thinking grit. I don't want to steal, yeah, Doug, words, bit, but
0: that, that's right. You know, so I would say sales is a grind. You know, people see the glory in the movies and they see Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross and they go, oh, there's this great, <laughs> incredible, you know, thing that happens for some people. They forget about all the other guys in Glen Gary, Glenn Ross that weren't constantly seeing success, but were sort of there every day grinding it out and making it work.
1: Constant failure, don't be afraid of it. I think that's a great, great message and a great theme.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the advice I always give very early salespeople and I don't, it just doesn't have to go in if you don't want. But the advice I always give people early in their sales career is you're going to send an email to somebody and they're not going to respond. And there's two things you can do in your head. One is you can say, oh, I sent the wrong email and they hate me and I'm so bad at this. The other thing is you can say, well, actually, you're, I'm going to recreate what they were thinking. And what they were really thinking is, hey, Alex, thank you so much for sending me that email. And that was incredible information. I loved it. I'm super busy right now and I didn't have time to respond to, but I'm really looking forward to talking to you soon. And if you can be the person that's constantly putting the positive thought in your head rather than the negative, you'll be much more successful at this job.
1: I love that mindset shift. I think that's a really good note to end on. you I don't know what actually happened.
0: happened. Maybe that's they right. did love it. But why is it that early in their career, everyone is convinced that when somebody doesn't respond, they hate you?
1: Right. You don't well, know. There's your psychology major coming in, right? <laughs> 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 well, it's been such a thrill to have you here, Alex. Really, you've dropped some knowledgeable sound bites for us that we're so excited to share with our listeners. You are welcome back anytime to the show. Alex, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performance sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, well, give us that five-star review, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.